out of the corner of my eye, you know, I could sense that he could see and sense that he's right there beside the bed. And like a gazelle, he just climbs up and sits next to my head. And I'm still, you know, pretending to be asleep. And, and he says, hi. Hi. That's his voice. Hi. And then he proceeded to reach down my forehead and grab my eyelids <laughs> and, and pull them open. And right at that moment, I got a verse. <laughs> Seriously, this jumped into my mind. Let us therefore draw near with a confidence or with confidence to the throne of grace. Not that I'm the throne of grace, but that we need mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I just thought, what a beautiful word picture or, or you know, object lesson in a grandson coming in to wake up his granddad with absolutely no fear, no thought in his head that granddad's going to reject me or yell at me. I mean, there was, there was, that didn't even enter his mind. This was his territory. He could come in and, uh, you know, get my attention and we could play. Uh, isn't that a beautiful illustration of how we should feel toward our Heavenly Father and approaching him in prayer? So, seven great saints, but maybe Kemper's little lesson is the one that we needed to hear today. So let's begin. Uh, the first great saint I want to talk about is Charles Spurgeon. Uh, we, know, uh, we know Spurgeon more as a preacher than as a, uh, you know, vaulted or vaunted saint of prayer. But I'd like to read to you from a, a sermon and uh, talk to you about what he said. This is a sermon called True Prayer, True Power. And it seems to me that that was Spurgeon's message in a nutshell, that there is real power in prayer. We question that. We, we go to prayer and we doubt that, don't we? We question it. But let me read to you some of his words about that. He said, now my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe. That it has a more omnipotent force than electricity, attraction, gravitation, or any other of those secret forces which men have called by names, but which they do not understand. Prayer hath as palpable, as true, as sure, as invariable an influence over the entire universe as any of the laws of matter. When a man really prays, it's not a question whether God will hear him or not. He must hear him. Not because there is any compulsion in the prayer, but there is a sweet and blessed compulsion in the promise. God has promised to hear prayer, and he will perform his promise. Spurgeon encouraged his listeners to pray about specific things. He said, when you come into the presence of royalty, you don't come in kind of just to wander around and not be specific with your requests. You come in wanting 
to ask for something. And so he says, be specific in your prayers. Then he tells a story about earnest desire in prayer. He says that cold prayers just don't cut it with God, that we have to find that fervency. Now, when I hear the word fervency, I think of, of, of weeping. And uh, I'm not a weeper uh, in prayer, at least not yet. But I find that as you explore the Greek terminology about fervency and so forth, it's, it's about work. It's about earnest desire. It's about persistence. So don't feel you have to be a crier to be uh, fulfilling that fervency sense. But he said this. He tells this story. There was a beautiful illustration of true prayer addressed to man in the conduct of two noble ladies whose husbands were condemned to die and were about to be executed when they came before King George and supplicated for their pardon. The king rudely and cruelly repulsed them. George I, it was his very nature to do so. And when they pleaded yet again and again and again, they could not be gotten to rise from their knees. They had actually to be dragged out of court for they would not retire until the king had smiled upon them and told them that their husbands should live. Alas, they failed, but they were noble women for their perseverance in thus pleading for their husbands' lives. That is the way for us to pray to God. We must have such a desire for the thing we want that we will not rise until we have it, but always in submission to his divine will nevertheless. Spurgeon exhorted us to not let this great power lie dormant. He said, prayer has real power and is also a real pleasure. Isn't that a great message? There is real power in prayer. I think his, the verse that I'd like to attach to his life mes- message is James 5.16 the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The second one is E.M. Bounds. How many of you have heard of E.M. Bounds? Uh, His story, he was a Civil War chaplain for the Confederacy in Tennessee and a Methodist minister. He prayed from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. every morning. And after 46 years of ministry, He was virtually unknown. Out of the eight classics on prayer that we have today, there were only two that were published by his death. Yet now he's considered by most evangelicals as the most prolific and fervent author on prayer. This was a man, he was a small man, and he was described as having uh, very intense, like eagle eyes, very intense eyes. And he made preachers uncomfortable because, uh, you know, we preachers want to say, well, the church is in good shape. It's, it's very sound. The doctrine is sound and, and so forth. And yet he was, he was, you know, particular about preachers pursuing greater holiness and not being so indifferent and praying more. And so he made, he made preachers in particular uncomfortable. He called the church to greater holiness, to greater revival and repentance I want to read a portion of his, his work so you can get a feel for how he talked and how he prayed. 
He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. And I would say that his life message was that the power of um, powerful prayer is much time spent alone with God. Much time spent alone with God. That was his message. He said, um, while many private prayers in the nature of things must be short, while public prayers as a rule ought to be short, uh, while there is ample room for and value on spontaneous prayer, yet in our private communions with God, time is a feature essential to its value. Much time spent with God is the secret of all successful praying. Prayer which is felt as a mighty force is the immediate or immediate product of much time spent with God. He goes on to say, God's acquaintance is not made by pop calls. God does not bestow his gifts on the casual or hasty comers and goers. Much time with God alone is the secret of knowing him and of influence with him. He yields to the persistency of a faith that knows him. He bestows his richest gifts upon those who declare their desire for and appreciation of those gifts by the constancy as well as the earnestness of their prayers. My purpose, he says, is to impress on our minds the necessity of being much alone with God. I would say Mark 135 is the verse that we should attach to E.M. Bounds. This verse says, And rising up a great while before day, he, Jesus, went out and departed to a lonely place and there prayed. I really want to give thanks to God that in, in my own prayer life, I'm finding more and more desire, more and more pleasure as I spend significant time alone with God. I hope that that's the same for you. I hope there's a hunger in you to spend more time with God. Martin Luther is number three, and you've got to love this guy because his message is prayer is a battle, so fight. Prayer is a battle. And um, let me read some things uh, that he's written. He said he was so, well, before that, I just want to say he was so human. He was so real about prayer. He so understood how we fight doubt within ourselves, how we he talks a lot about coldness of heart and um, the unworthiness we feel even as we pray. So his, he felt his job was to encourage saints to face these things, the unworthiness, the coldness of heart, the apathy, and pray. And he had, he had some rules about how to do that. In 1535, he wrote a little 35-page little paper called A Simple Way to Pray and he dedicated it to his barber. His barber asked him, you know, help me pr 
learn some ways to pray more effectively. And so Martin Luther just, you know, penned out a 35-page, you know, little bit of help for him. Um, he gave guidance about how to fire up a cold heart. For example, he said, First, when I have become cool and joyless in prayer because of other tasks or thoughts, for the flesh and the devil always impede and obstruct prayer, I take my psalter, I hurry to my room, and as time permits, I say quietly to myself, word for word, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and some psalms. He understood spiritual warfare. He called it Anaktungen. I believe I'm pronouncing that close. Um, But this is the idea that Satan is always attacking us. Our flesh is always wanting to be... Wow. So you women, great power. You have great power at your disposal. The fifth great saint is one you probably haven't heard of. Um, Her name is Sonia Carson. And her life message, I believe, is the power of simple faith. Her son, world-class brain surgeon Dr. Ben Carson, tells the story that he was the poster child for what we now call at-risk kids in the 1950s. Um, he, He said it this way. He said, in the 1950s, I was black, I was male, I was in poverty, I grew up in a ghetto culture, I grew up on the streets of urban Detroit, Um, I was a product of a broken home, I had a poorly educated mother who got married very young, and it was actually 13 years old. She was a single mother with no job skills. He was the poster child for an at-risk child, he said. Sonia, his mother, was one of 24 children in rural Tennessee. And overnight, practically overnight, a man came and married her and and swept her from Appalachia to Detroit, only eventually to be abandoned by him because, unbeknownst to her, he had a second family. In third grade, Ben dedicated his life to Christ and asked his mother if he could be a doctor. They were walking home from church, and she grabbed his shoulders, and she said this. She said, Benny, if you ask the Lord for something and believe he will do it, then it will happen. Yet by the fifth grade, Benny was the class dummy. He felt ashamed to raise his hand for any reason. The kids would snicker at him. And uh, he and his brother were failing school. And so his mother said one night, she said, all right, boys, I'm going to ask the Lord. I'm going to stay up and pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord what to do, and he's going to give me the answer. And so they went to bed. He said he couldn't get to sleep that night. He was scared of what the Lord might say. And sure enough, (laughs) the Lord uh, told his mother that uh, they should only be allowed to watch three shows on TV a day, which was cutting it way back for them, and that they were to read two books and write book reports 
uh, on those two books and review them with her at the end of the week. Well, you can imagine how this went over with Ben and his brother. But they respected their mother too much to disobey her. So they began to go to the public library and read. Ben started first reading about animals and, and then plants and then rocks. And then one day, uh, his teacher came into class with a big chunk of shiny black rock. And he said, who knows what this is? And um, all the kids tried and guessed. None of them could guess that it was obsidian. And, uh, but Ben tentatively raised his hand and answered correctly that it was obsidian and then launched into how obsidian was formed by lava flowing down and meeting water and so forth. And the kids were just dumbstruck. Ben said he was dumbstruck uh, that he knew something. And so he, he rose to the top of his class in two years. Today, he is the... Um, let me get this right. He is the Director of Pediatric Neurosurgery at St. John's Medical Institution. He's famous for separating conjoined twins, especially where the brain is involved. So this is what can happen when a simp simple person of faith is confident that God will answer their prayers. The verse I want to share for um, and attach to Sonia is John 10:27. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. By the way, if you're interested in that story, this is the name of the book, Take the Risk, uh, by Ben Carson. He's a, he remains a man of faith, and in this book he talks about uh, the place of risk in our society and how do you personally... Um, Learn to identify, choose, and live with acceptable risk. Of course, he's had to do that as he decides whether to operate on people who want to be separated. The sixth saint is Reese Howells. And a um, little history on this man. He lived from 1879 to 1950. He grew up in Wales. And at 12 years old, he left school and worked in a tin mill and a coal mine. He was deeply affected by the 1904-1905 Welsh revival. He and his wife became missionaries in Africa, and he was led down a path, he says, of intercession and learning about intercession. Intercession is, is when we pray for, for others. Um, He believed that in intercession, God gives us a prayer that we are to see through no matter how long or how great the cost. And as we enter into deep intercession, three things happen. First of all, we identify with the people or the nation or whatever we are praying about. That we agonize. God, God crucifies us, our, our natural desires and hungers and appetites and wants, God takes us through a process of putting those things to death so we can be a purer channel of prayer for that need. We agonize over the people group or the, the thing we're praying for, and then we find great authority in our prayers 
for that situation. Um, I want to read what he says and then, and then talk with you about it for a minute afterwards. He said, intercession is not just intense prayer. It's, first of all, identification. The identification of the intercessor with the ones for whom he intercedes is perfectly seen in the Savior. Of him it was said that he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for them. As the divine intercessor interceding for a lost world, he drained the cup of our lost condition to its last drop. Identification is thus the first law of the intercessor. He pleads effectively because he gives his life for those he pleads for. He is their genuine representative. He has submerged his self-interest in their needs and sufferings and as far as possible has literally taken their place. So this is that first thing that he's talking about, identification. Have any of you ever felt that God gave you a prayer and you, you entered into a deep level of identification with the people that you were praying for? How many can say, I, I've experienced that? And then God begins to, to, uh, to sort of break you, if it were, as it were, of your self-interests and your, your self-pursuits, and you become consumed with the people or the thing that you're praying for. Then there's the second step, what he calls the agony. When the Holy Ghost really lives his life in a chosen vessel, there is no limit to the extremes to which he will take him in his passion to warn and save the lost. Isaiah, the aristocrat, had to go naked barefooted for three years as a warning to Israel. Hosea had to marry a harlot to show his people that the heavenly husband was willing to take back his adulterous bride. Jeremiah was not allowed to marry as a warning to Israel against the terrors and tragedies of captivity. Ezekiel was not allowed to shed one tear at the death of his wife, who was, quote, the desire of his eyes. We could talk about Jesus in the garden, whipped and beaten for our sins. We could talk about Paul bearing on his body the marks, he said, of Christ, of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. These, were, these are examples that Reese Howell talks about as, as people who go, they identify so deeply, and then they go through this agony in behalf of the people that they are serving. So it's not just prayer, it's also action. And then finally, the authority. He says, intercession so identifies the intercessor with the sufferer that it gives him a prevailing place with God. He moves God. He even causes him to change his mind. He gains his objective, or rather the spirit gains it through him. Mr. Howells would often speak of the gained position of intercession. Now, this is, this is a paragraph that is, is interesting and, and controversial. Mr. Howells used to speak of it in Mr. Mueller's phrases as entering, quote, the grace of faith in contrast to receiving a gift of faith. What he meant was that when we pray in a normal way, 
we may hope that God, in his goodness, will give us the thing we pray for. If he does, we rejoice. It is his gift to us. But we have no power or authority to say that we can always get, get the same answer at any time. Such are the gifts of faith. But when an intercessor has gained the place of intercession in a certain realm, then he has entered into, quote, this is George Mueller now saying, the grace of faith, unquote. Along that special line, the measureless sea of God's grace is open to him. That is the gained place of intercession. It's the idea that if you pray and identify and agonize and work and go so deeply into a thing, you can go so deeply into a thing that God gives you a place of measureless faith in that thing. And... Um, I was thinking about this and thinking about, is that really true? Uh, is it a, you know, do I want my hearers this morning to receive that as a doctrine on a doctrinal level? I, I don't want you to receive that as Christian doctrine, okay? But I don't think it's just a theological construct either. I don't think it's just... Uh, a nice idea that someone lifted out of Scripture. I think there's too many examples of that being true. Um, and I'll, I'll elucidate a few of those in a moment. So I would like to say I think this is a spiritual principle that Reese Howell has tapped into. For example, um, I thought of Mike Bros and his work with, with mental health and how... Uh, you may remember that we were praying for uh, the Yale apartments over here to be opened up, and Mike came to an elders' meeting, and we, we saw Mike uh, agonizing over those people and over that situation. I, I can point to, we could point to Kirk and Hanya and their dedication to the neighborhood and, and how Hanya is, is rising in stature at Kendall Whittier, and th this couple is giving themselves to the neighborhood, not just in prayer, but, but also in action. They are gaining a place and a voice of authority. It can be in a profession, like I think of you, Beth, and toiling away for years as a science teacher and gaining, gaining a voice and gaining influence uh, with the kids, um, you know, just such a depth of experience and such a depth of heart uh, 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 for children. So, um, oh, and one other example would be Charlene and Patty and, and Dawn and Jody and, and others who I'm probably not even aware of who have met weekly for prayer here in uh, the conference room to pray for the kids at Kendall Whittier. And now they're seeing kids saved, and again, they're gaining authority in the spirit uh, to see their prayers answered. So I don't think this idea is spacey or, or a, a flukish idea, or I think it has weight and merit and could encourage us to go much, much further in prayer. The, um, the scripture that I'd like to attach to Reese Howell is Ezekiel 22.30. Some of you are quoting this 
already in your minds. And I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Has God given you a prayer? Has God called you to intercession for something? I think it's a good question to ask. The last great saint is Andrew Murray. He wrote a lot about prayer. And uh, his life message was what he called the message of the inner chamber, meaning he's taking this from Matthew 6.6, and that is actually our verse for him. Matthew 6.6 says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room or your inner chamber, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will repay you. I remember in college, uh, it was difficult in a dorm setting to find a quiet place to pray, but I found this place down in the basement of the dorm, this room where it seemed like no one ever came. And I just had beautiful times of fellowship with God there. And I remember sitting on this sort of ugly yellow vinyl 70s couch uh, praying, and, and all of a sudden, I felt the Lord said, Jim, I want you to dance for me. And I, you know, <laughs> I thought, oh, no, that can't be the Lord, you know. Uh, but it kept coming, and so I started dancing, and that, that place became just so special to me in my mind, that inner room, that inner chamber, a place where it was just me and God. And that's what Andrew Murray talks about. He talks about the message having three parts, this inner chamber, uh, the wonderful love of God, the deep sinfulness of man, and the glorious grace of Christ. Let me read just a little bit about him, uh, what he says. Under the wonderful love of God, he says, think of God, his greatness, his holiness, his unspeakable glory, And then on the inestimable privilege with which he invites his children, each one of us, however sinful or feeble we may be, to have access to him every hour of the day and converse with him as long as we want. If we enter into the inner chamber, then God is ready to meet us, to have fellowship with us, to give us the joy and strength that we need with the living assurance in our heart that he is with us and will undertake for us in everything. Should we not cry out with joy? What an honor. What a salvation. But then he talks about the deep sinfulness of man because we avoid the inner chamber. We'd rather go dig ditches or something. Uh, so Some great saint said that. It might have been Martin Luther. I'd rather dig ditches than pray. Um, because of the the battle there that goes on, um, because of that sinfulness, he, he, he says, again, much like Luther, what is it? Why do we avoid it so? Why do we run from it so? It's our flesh. Uh, what is it then, he says, that makes the inner chamber so powerless? Is it not our deep sinfulness and the aversion of our fallen nature for God 
which makes the world with its fellowship more attractive than being alone with the Heavenly Father. But then the third message of the inner chamber is that glorious grace of God that delivers us even from that. He says, begin by acknowledging, by confessing before him in a childlike and simple manner the sin of neglecting and desecrating the inner chamber. Bow before him in deep shame and sorrow. Then he says, even though your heart is cold and dead, persevere in the exercise of faith that Christ is an almighty and faithful Savior. You may be sure that deliverance will come. Has he not undertaken to redeem us from all the other sins? And will he leave us to deal with the sin of prayerlessness in our own strength? No. In this also we may come to him and cry out, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make me clean. I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, I hope these uh, great saints have been inspiring to you. Um, But really what it all boils down to is, will we pray? Will you pray this year as you've never prayed before? I want to invite you to do so. So let me just review. Spurgeon's message was the power and pleasure in prayer. E.M. Bounds was extended time with God is the secret of prayer. Martin Luther said, prayer is a battle. So enter the fight. Susanna Wesley that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And I would add this, no one's too busy to pray. If anyone was too busy to pray, it was Susanna Wesley. Sonia Carson, the mother of Ben Carson, the brain surgeon, God hears and answers simple faith. Reese Howells talked about the gained place of an intercessor. And Andrew Murray the message of the inner chamber. Or maybe what you'll remember is Kemper, who climbs up next to his sleeping grandpa and with no thought of rejection, pulls back his his eyelids and says, Hi! If you'd like to move ahead in prayer this year, would you stand or kneel and let's just have a a prayer to that end. Um, I hope that something has stuck in your mind, not just in a normal way, but really you've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. So let's reach out to God. Father, we praise you for how you're drawing us after yourself in these days. We invite you to invade our minds and our hearts further. We invite you to agitate us to greater depths and vistas of prayer. We ask you to move upon us and out of us the apathy and mediocrity and laziness and the many voices that want to keep us
from that deep communion with you. We ask you to give us the gift of repentance, Lord, that we might be more like Jesus. Make us hungry, Father, for time alone with you like never before. We ask you to adjust our attitudes and our wrong beliefs about prayer, that prayer is weak, that it's only hard work, and so on. We ask you, Father, to give us a fresh vision and fresh core beliefs about prayer. And then we ask for simple, childlike faith, Lord, that would never conceive of you rejecting us or pushing us away or being asleep. We love you, Lord. We give ourselves to you afresh. We ask you to make us a more deep-spirited people. And as always, Lord, we will give you all the praise and all the glory. Hallelujah and amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Here's a man who has great authority because he invests his life in this body. And I just want to sit, let you know that Bill told me today he'll be able to watch the Super Bowl beginning to end for the first time since 1994. But his back was very sore this week from shoveling. So get out of here. <laughs>